Welcome back to Amplify, the podcast corollary to EB Medicine's emergency medicine practice. I'm Jeff Nussbaum, and I'm back once again with my co-host, Nachi Gupta. We'll be taking you through the April 2018 issue of Emergency Medicine Practice, jaundice in the emergency department, meeting the challenges of diagnosis and treatment. This is a huge change of pace from our last two episodes on inhalational injuries and thermal burns, but definitely an important topic, especially for our liver referral center. Yeah, definitely important at a liver center, but let's not act like jaundice is specific to the large academic centers, as there are approximately 52,000 ED visits a year for patients with jaundice. Wow, that's a lot. This month's issue was authored by Dr. Taylor and Dr. Wheatley, both of the Emory School of Medicine. It was peer-reviewed by Dr. Chung of the ICANN School of Medicine at Mount Sinai, and Dr. Horan of Our Lady of Lourdes Medical Center. So let's get started with some background. Jaundice is not a diagnosis, but rather a physical manifestation of elevated serum bilirubin. Hyperbilirubinemia presents with many vague complaints, like abdominal pain and puritis, as well as more severe manifestations like encephalopathy and even death. From pruritus to death, quite the spectrum. According to one study of over 700 patients, ischemic liver injury, for example from sepsis or hypotension, was the most common cause of jaundice, accounting for over 20% of cases. In this same study, non-alcoholic acute liver disease came in second, occurring in 13% of patients, followed by viral hepatitis in 9%, and drug-induced liver injury in just 4%. Not surprisingly, acetaminophen toxicity was the most common cause of drug-induced cases. Before we get into the recommendations for this month, one quick reminder. Don't forget that the represents an answer to one of the 10 CME questions found at the end of the article. If you're an attending listening, don't forget to answer the questions to earn the CME credit you deserve. Great point. So this month's recommendations come from an appraisal of the literature over the last 10 years. After a thorough search, the authors identified 700 articles, several guidelines, including the American College of Radiology and the American Society of Gastrointestinal Endoscopy, as well as Cochrane Systematic Reviews to help develop their evidence-based recommendations. Tons of literature to sort through. Okay, so let's get back to the basics. As you mentioned just a second ago, jaundice is a manifestation of the deposition of bilirubin in various tissues of the body. Typically, it occurs when the bilirubin level reaches about 2.5 milligrams per deciliter. Bilirubin comes in two forms, conjugated and unconjugated. About 80% of all bilirubin is from the breakdown of red blood cells in the liver and spleen. This unconjugated bilirubin, bound to albumin, circulates back to the liver where it's conjugated through glucuronidation. Once conjugated, bilirubin is stored as bile in the gallbladder. This empties into the intestines, where it's metabolized by bacteria into both stercobilin and urobilinogen. Stercobilin is excreted in the stool, whereas urobilinogen is reabsorbed and excreted by the kidneys. Some conjugated bilirubin is also simply reabsorbed and recirculates back to the liver. In cases of biliary obstruction, conjugated bilirubin also enters circulation via diffusion out of obstructed hepatocytes. Before moving forward, we also need to briefly define indirect and direct bilirubin, which are often used as surrogates for conjugated and unconjugated bili. The laboratory test for direct bilirubin represents the product of conjugated bilirubin reacting with test reagents. The test for unconjugated bili, however, requires an accelerator, which is then measured, hence the term indirect. This is important because indirect bilirubin measurements tend to underestimate the total amount of unconjugated bili, whereas the opposite is true for the direct bilirubin measurements. Interesting. When thinking about jaundice, it's often easiest to break them down into two categories, conditions that result in elevations of direct or conjugated bilirubin and those that result in elevations of indirect or unconjugated bilirubin. That's the first step. The next step is to determine where metabolism has gone awry. Is it prior to the liver, in the liver itself, or after the liver? 
The first two mechanisms result in increases in indirect billy, whereas the latter result in elevations of direct billy. That's a great framework to set up this discussion. Let's start with elevations in indirect bilirubin, which occur via three mechanisms, overproduction, impaired uptake, and impaired conjugation. Overproduction occurs via decreased synthesis or increased destruction of red blood cells. Impaired hepatic uptake is the second mechanism. Common causes of impaired hepatic uptake are CHF, portosystemic shunts, cirrhosis, Gilbert syndrome, and several medications. And lastly, we have impaired conjugation. This occurs due to decreased activity of uridine diphosphoglucuronosyltransferase transferase activity, which is seen in conditions such as Gilbert syndrome, Krigler-Najjar syndrome, cirrhosis, Wilson's disease, some antibiotic use, and some hormone use, such as levothyroxine and ethanol estradiol. Definitely check out tables 2 and 3 on page 4, which have a more comprehensive list of the causes of indirect hyperbilirubinemia and hemolysis. Alright, let's move on to causes of direct hyperbilirubinemia. There are many inherited and acquired causes. In the neonatal period, Dubin-Johnson and Rotor syndrome are both rare causes of hyperbilirubinemia, which present with fluctuating levels of both conjugated and unconjugated bilirubin. Both are benign and require no treatment. And don't forget about progressive familial intrahepatic cholestasis and benign recurrent intrahepatic cholestasis, which are also inherited forms of purely elevated conjugated hyperbilirubinemia. Far more common and perhaps relevant to our emergency practice are the extrahepatic causes of biliary obstruction, which lead to both conjugated and unconjugated hyperbilirubinemia. Common forms of extrahepatic obstruction include gallstones and tumors including liver, gallbladder, pancreas, and metastatic disease. In cases of extrahepatic obstruction, look out for concurrent elevations in GGT and ALKFAS, which are usually elevated due to dilated biliary ducts. In addition, infection such as ascending cholangitis, parasitic invasions, and AIDS cholangiopathy can all lead to an elevated hyperbilirubinemia. And the last mechanism of direct hyperbilirubinemia to discuss is intrahepatic cholestasis. There's a huge list of potential causes of intrahepatic cholestasis, all of which are listed in Table 6 on page 5. Important causes to consider include hepatitis, both viral, alcoholic, and non-alcoholic, cirrhosis, primary sclerosis and cholangitis, primary bilious cirrhosis, medication side effects, infection, TPN, sickle cell disease, and TB. Again, there are tons more, so make sure to check out Table 6 on page 5. You may have noted that many of these conditions lead to intrahepatic cholestasis either via primary cholestasis or direct hepatocellular injury. Elevations in the transaminases relative to the bilia and alkfos suggest a hepatocellular injury pattern, whereas elevations in the bilia and alkfos relative to the transaminases favor a primary cholestatic pattern. Great point. Let's move on to the differential and pre-hospital care. First is the differential. Wow, the differential for jaundice is incredibly long. Table 7, which takes up literally half a page, has a pretty comprehensive differential. Consider pathologies such as neoplasm, HCC and cholangiocarcinoma, hereditary diseases such as Wilson's and alpha-1 antitrypsin deficiency, infectious causes including viral, fungal, bacterial, and parasitic, toxic causes such as medication use and alcohol, and lastly, immunologic causes including autoimmune hepatitis, PBC, PSC, and NASH. With respect to pre-hospital care, things are pretty standard here. Maintain universal precautions to avoid the infectious etiologies, supportive care is needed, and involve medical control to ensure transportation to a center with appropriate resources. Easy enough, on to ED evaluation. Unlike last month where we focused on immediate airway management and stabilization, the vast majority of patients with jaundice are stable and require no immediate interventions. For the relatively few who are in fulminant failure, obtundent, coagulopathic, and hypotensive, initiate standard resuscitation with fluids, pressors, and blood products as needed. For the rest, you can move right to the history and physical. 
Remarkably, in one study, H&P was 86% sensitive in identifying intrahepatic versus extrahepatic causes of jaundice. The physical exam lives on. It went somewhere? Never mind. Don't forget to ask about pruritus, constitutional symptoms, anorexia, and weight change, paying particular attention to the presence or absence of pain. Fever or chills with right upper quadrant pain is suggestive of acute cholangitis, whereas painless jaundice is classic for a pancreatic head mass. And every patient needs a medication history with specific investigation into acetaminophen usage, including time and amount taken. This isn't to say that other meds aren't as important as they certainly are. Just don't forget about acetaminophen as there's an antidote. Right. And another liver-specific history question to address would be about any possible mushroom exposure, as these patients, just like those with acetaminophen overdoses, would benefit from N-acetylcysteine. The physical, as always, starts with vitals. Fever may indicate a focal infection, such as hepatitis, ascending cholangitis, cholecystitis, or sepsis. Tachypnea or hypoxia may result from pleural fusions, pulmonary edema, secondary to end-stage liver disease, or may be sepsis-related. The patient's mental status exam warrants a more detailed discussion, as those with jaundice are at risk for elevated ammonia, leading to increased intracranial pressure and hepatic encephalopathy. There are four stages of hepatic encephalopathy. Stage 1 is associated with impaired attention, irritability, and depression. On exam, you may note tremors, apraxia, and incoordination. In stage 2, the patient may be drowsy, have sleep or memory disturbances, or even behavioral changes. On exam, you may note asterixes, slurred speech, and ataxia. Stage 3 is marked by confusion, disorientation, somnolence, and amnesia. Look for hypoactive reflexes, nystagmus, clonus, and muscular rigidity on exam. And lastly, in stage 4, the patient may be stuporous or in a coma. The pupils will be dilated and they'll have decerebrate posturing with exaggerated oculocephalic reflexes. Continuing down the neck, look for JVD and check for a hepatojugular reflex. Start your abdominal exam at the level of the skin, looking for telangiectasias, gynecomastia, or caput medusa. Also, note neocytes. Rapid onset ascites is concerning for hepatic venous thrombosis. Ascites with abdominal tenderness is concerning for SBP. Tenderness specifically in the right upper quadrant may point to either liver inflammation or gallbladder pathology. Although you did just mention an abdominal skin exam, there's actually some really interesting stuff in this issue for the jaundice skin exam in general. As you may know, the classic teaching is that jaundice first appears in the sclera, conjunctiva, and hypoglossal regions. In one study in the late 90s, there was only a modest agreement between providers, nurses, and parents as to whether or not an infant was jaundiced with a kappa of 0.48. In a second study of just infants, there was a very poor interrater reliability on estimated bilirubin concentrations. In conclusion, although the skin exam is important for jaundice, this exam alone is insufficient. Not only are we not great at estimating the bilirubin, there's also other factors that affect the levels, like albumin concentration, recent meds taken, as some, like salicylates, can displace the bilirubin from the albumin, and the volume contraction, which leads to falsely elevated albumin concentrations. This is why checking labs is critically important. What a transition into the next section, the labs. At a minimum, patients with jaundice need a serum bilirubin in direct and indirect fractions ordered. As we've already mentioned, elevated indirect bilirubin would be due to overproduction issues or impaired hepatic uptake and conjugation. In addition, the rest of the hepatic panel and the coagulation panel should also be ordered as the bilirubin levels alone are not enough and not true indicators of hepatic dysfunction. In fact, studies in healthy volunteers have shown that the liver can metabolize twice the daily bilirubin load and can excrete up to 10 times the amount produced daily. The other components of the hepatic panel will help you further differentiate hepatocellular injury from cholestasis. Elevations in liver enzymes, AST and ALT, point to hepatocellular injury. Taking it one step further, you can examine the ratio of the two to further differentiate the pathology. That is, an AST to ALT ratio of 2 to 1 is suggestive of alcoholic liver disease. 
The ALKFOS also provides useful information. Elevations in the ALKFOS may indicate cholestasis. Use caution, however, as there are several sources of ALKFOS in the body. Correlate ALKFOS elevations with either GGT or 5' nucleotidase to point to a hepatic source. But do note that GGT is not specific to the liver and has in some studies shown to be increased by ethanol usage. And if the bilirubin is elevated, but the rest of the hepatic and coagulation panel is normal, consider hemolysis or inherited disorders. As we mentioned at the beginning, both Dubin-Johnson syndrome and Rotor syndrome cause a mixed hyperbilirubinemia, but neither requires treatment. On the flip side, Krigler-Najjar type 1, another inherited hyperbilirubinemia, can be life-threatening if not diagnosed within the first few days of life. While basic chemistries won't help you clinch a diagnosis, evaluating for the presence or severity of dehydration will help you with disposition, so make sure a BMP is ordered. A CBC is also a must, aiding in the diagnosis of sepsis, hemolysis, or thrombocytopenia. Adding a reticulocyte count may also prove valuable as a reticulocyte index of less than 2% favors underproduction, whereas values over 2 favor blood loss or destruction. Additionally, with suspected hemolysis, make sure you have an LDH, haptoglobin, peripheral smear, and Coombs test, which can help narrow the hemolysis differential. Great addition. We've tossed around coags quite a bit, but let's focus on them for a second. As the liver produces all the coagulation factors, except for factor 8 and von Willebrand's factor, as the liver fails, the PT and INR will rise. This is serious and represents significant hepatic dysfunction. In addition, a lactic acid may help point to a shock state or decrease liver function as the liver helps in clearing lactic acid. In cases of liver failure due to acetaminophen toxicity, an ABG may be helpful as the arterial pH is used in the King's College criteria to score patients for liver transplantation. Check out the corollary calculated decisions included with the interactive PDF of the April issue or MDCalc for more info on the criteria. And more broadly, in patients with suspected overdose or with an unclear etiology of hepatocellular injury, Include an acetaminophen level when you send labs, as well as a viral hepatitis panel to round out the workup. Perfect. On to imaging. Imaging is needed to differentiate between intrahepatic and extrahepatic etiologies of obstructive jaundice. It's not all that surprising, but ultrasound is the workhorse of this section, as it's both the least expensive and least invasive, and it's often readily available. Ultrasound can detect calculi in the gallbladder with a 98% sensitivity and a 93 to 97% specificity. Additionally, ultrasound can detect obstruction with a sensitivity and specificity as high as 91 and 95% respectively. Ultrasound has the additional advantage that it can visualize the common bile duct. In those less than 50, a duct greater than 5 millimeters is concerning for obstruction. In older patients or those without a gallbladder, it may be larger at baseline. Although ultrasound can provide accurate measurements of the common bile duct, it's not necessarily the test to find the source of the dilatation. With a sensitivity of 75%, it's not sensitive enough to rule out cholelithiasis. Instead, CT with IV contrast is the next appropriate test followed by ERCP, MRCP, or endoscopic ultrasound depending on what resources are available. The primary advantage of CT is that it's vastly superior at identifying other causes of obstruction, such as malignancy, and CT also evaluates the other organs. And if there's concern for cholelithiasis or cholecystitis, and the right upper quadrant ultrasound is negative or equivocal, consider a HIDA scan. HIDA scans actually have the highest sensitivity for cholecystitis. ERCP, while not done in the ED, is worth discussing, at least so you understand the performance characteristics. ERCP is invasive, but it allows for direct visualization of the biliary tree and pancreatic ducts. It's superior to both CT and ultrasound for the detection of the site of extrahepatic obstruction. In addition to the diagnostic options available when performing ERCP, there are also therapeutic options such as stenting strictures, removing stones, fixing leaks, etc. 
While it might seem reasonable to jump right to ERCP in cases of obstruction, that isn't always the best option. A recent Cochrane review showed that conservative medical management versus early ERCP had similar outcomes, at least in patients with gallstone pancreatitis. Another option to visualize duct stones is MRCP. It's non-invasive and has a sensitivity of 90% and a specificity of 100%. Unfortunately, this option isn't available in many facilities. And there's also percutaneous transhepatic cholangiography, or PTC, which is invasive. In this procedure, a needle is passed, via the skin, to the peripheral bile duct to deliver contrast. PTC has a sensitivity and specificity of nearly 100%, and also offers similar therapeutic options to ERCP. Major complications such as bleeding, abscess formation, and bile duct dilatation occur at a rate of about 3-4%. to 4%. Wow, that's pretty high. Given the plethora of available imaging modalities, the authors recommend considering three factors when choosing an imaging technique, pretest probability of malignancy, obstructive versus non-obstructive pathology, and patient stability. If malignancy is suspected, CT should be the go-to modality. Consider adding pancreatic and portal venous phases as well. In patients with a high likelihood for benign biliary obstruction presenting with acute onset abdominal pain, ultrasound is the best screening tool as your first line of modality. If the ultrasound is inconclusive, CT is likely the next best test due to how readily available it is. It's worth noting that the American College of Radiology Appropriateness Criteria, it's quite the name there, recommends ultrasound or MRI in those with low suspicion for obstruction as they're safe and non-invasive. And lastly, if imaging studies fail to reveal a cause of jaundice, the patient may ultimately require a liver biopsy. Perfect. So that's it for imaging. We're finally on to treatment. Although we're going to run through it in just a minute, check out the clinical pathway outlined on page 12. It's very concise, with very clear recs to guide you through a host of circumstances. I'll get us started. Drum roll, please. The treatment for most causes of jaundice is largely supportive. <laughs> but we can take this scenario by scenario. In patients with hemolysis, treatment depends on the cause. Those with sickle cell disease should be treated with pain control. Those with TTP or HUS may require steroids or exchange transfusions. Those with DIC will likely require blood products. In those with Charcot's triad of fever, right upper quadrant pain, and jaundice, they should be evaluated for acute cholangitis. Interestingly, it's only 50-75% to sensitive for diagnosing patients with acute cholangitis. For those with mild cases of cholangitis, medical management may be enough, but moderate to severe cases require urgent biliary drainage. To give you a real sense of the severity we're talking about here, suppurative cholangitis has a mortality of 8-49% to depending on risk factors. Certainly not to be taken lightly. And patients with extrahepatic obstructive jaundice from acute suppurative cholangitis require drainage. Patients with stones or strictures causing benign obstruction require ERCP for stone removal. In those who will undergo surgery, preoperative drainage has not been shown to be beneficial. And for patients with malignancy who are not surgical candidates, palliative biliary drainage is recommended. Biliary decompression has been shown to improve both food intake and cardiac output. Good stuff. In those with acute hepatocellular injury and subsequent hepatic encephalopathy, laxulose, 30 grams, TID, or 200 grams via retention enema should be given. For those with stages 3 or 4 hepatic encephalopathy, rifaximin, 400 grams every 8 hours should be added. In one study, rifaximin improved resolution of encephalopathy by 30% and decreased mortality almost in half, from 49 to 24%, as well as shortened length of stay. 
For patients with severe encephalopathy, the electrolytes, specifically glucose and potassium, must be closely monitored. And they must be monitored for cerebral edema as well, which occurs in up to 75 to 85% of patients with stage 4 encephalopathy. Interventions such as head-of-the-bed elevation, IV mannitol, and hypertonic saline may be indicated as the pressure rises. Dexamethasone and hyperventilation are of little to no help in patients with increased intracranial pressure from hepatic failure. For patients with signs of cerebral edema, reach out to your neurointensivist. For patients with jaundice and coagulopathy, FFP is recommended if there is active bleeding or prior to invasive procedures, such as central line insertion. Without active bleeding, there's no benefit to routine administration. Recombinant factor 7 and PCC may also be given, but these recommendations are only backed by very small studies as large trials or guidelines don't yet exist. While prophylactic antibiotics are not recommended for all comers with liver failure, those with any sign of infection or circulatory collapse should receive broad-spectrum coverage. For those with ascending cholangitis, ampsolbactam, ceftriaxone, cipro, or estrianam, and metronidazole, levofloxacin, piptazo, or apenem are all fine choices. The final treatment, which we've mentioned numerous times but not formally discussed, is NAC. Remember that acetaminophen is an incredibly common cause of liver failure. In one U.S. study, acetaminophen accounted for 39% of cases of acute failure. That's awful, but luckily there's a treatment. If given within 8 hours of an acute ingestion, NAC is 100% protective of liver injury. Refer the Rumac Matthew nomogram to determine if your patient should be treated. But it gets better. NAC may also have benefit at up to 48 hours out from the ingestion. For this reason, ASEP recommends NAC for any patient with a suspected acetaminophen overdose who is unable to be risk stratified. This reminds me of the decision to treat cyanide poisoning, relatively benign treatment with huge therapy implications if started early. So true, and when giving NAC, if the patient can take PO, they should take it orally. If not, NAC can be given IV. Although pregnancy class B, it's also recommended for pregnant patients with acute acetaminophen ingestions. In chronic ingestions, or those with really unclear timing, the authors also recommend empiric treatment until there's resolution of the transaminitis or the acetaminophen level falls to zero. I wonder if anyone's ever studied missed opportunities for NAC in the ED. According to this article, there are likely quite a few subtle presentations that could potentially benefit from NAC treatment. That would be difficult to do, but definitely interesting. Maybe one of our listeners can come up with an interesting study design. And you can use your math PhD for some stats. For sure, but let's move on to special populations. First up, the kids. Neonates are prone to jaundice because of increased red blood cell turnover and a limited ability to conjugate bilirubin. Additionally, in neonates, unconjugated bilirubin can cross the blood vein barrier and deposit in the basal ganglia, leading to encephalopathy and even death. Sadly, there's been a recent increase in incidence of severe hyperbilirubinemia in neonates. Although it's unclear exactly why, some believe it may be due to the shorter newborn length of stay after delivery, limiting observation time. And for this reason, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends a billy check two to three days after discharge and those discharged in less than 48 hours. Exactly. And some jaundice is to be expected, as I said, due to the increased turnover and limited ability to conjugate the billy, which can be further exacerbated by breastfeeding, which is associated with decreased levels of intestinal bacteria and therefore the formation of stercobilin. However, there are some pathologic causes to be aware of, such as the inherited conditions we discussed, hemolysis, racial predispositions, and red blood cell structural deficits and enzyme deficiencies. Neonatal bile can be checked either transcutaneously or through a blood sample. Once you have your sample, compare it to the AAP guidelines for hyperbilirubin treatment. At 48 hours, a level greater than 11 mg per deciliter should be treated. At 72 hours, a level greater than 13 should be treated. And at 96 hours, a level greater than 14 should be treated. Risk factors for severe neonatal hyperbilirubinemia include jaundice in the first 24 hours, 
previously jaundiced sibling, gestation of 35 to 38 weeks, exclusive breastfeeding, East Asian race, cephalohematoma, maternal age over 25, and male sex. First-line treatment is with phototherapy. In those who fail phototherapy or develop acute bilirubin encephalopathy, which is marked by hypo or hypertonia, fever, irritability, opisthotonus, and a high-pitched cry, exchange transfusions or phenobarbital therapy should be offered. And this probably goes without saying, but any neonate with a fever and jaundice requires a full septic workup as well as broad-spectrum coverage. Oh, definitely don't mess with the neonatal fever. In older children, the rules regarding jaundice are a bit different. In one study of 348 patients with liver failure, almost 50% had an indeterminate cause. 14% were due to acetaminophen toxicity, 10% due to metabolic disease, 6% due to autoimmune liver disease, 5% due to non-acetaminophen drug toxicity, and 6% due to infection. The next special population to discuss is pregnant patients. Pregnant patients can develop jaundice from any of the mechanisms we've already discussed, in addition to hyperemesis gravidarum, acute fatty liver of pregnancy, and intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy. In hyperemesis gravidarum, you may see elevations in both the direct and indirect bilirubin, which is likely due to both malnutrition and impaired bilirubin excretion. Admission should be considered for any patient with intractable vomiting, electrolyte abnormalities, renal failure, severe dehydration, or weight loss. Intrahepatic cholestasis of pregnancy occurs during the third trimester. It's idiopathic and presents with pruritus and puts patients at increased risk for preterm delivery and intrauterine demise. Many obstetricians therefore opt for early delivery over medical management. In addition to the litany of normal infectious causes, pregnant patients may also develop jaundice due to hepatitis E. Acute fatty liver of pregnancy is another third trimester pregnancy-related cause of jaundice. It occurs in 1 out of 13,000 pregnant patients and is more common in oliparous women and those with multiple fetuses. Patients with acute fatty liver of pregnancy typically present with nonspecific symptoms followed later by jaundice. HELP syndrome, a potentially lethal complication of pregnancy, can present similarly and will need to be ruled out. However, do note that HELP syndrome rarely causes jaundice. And the last special population are transplant patients. It should go without saying that all transplant patients should be managed in conjunction with their transplant surgeon or hepatologist. As with pregnant patients, transplant patients are prone to all the same causes of jaundice in addition to a few noteworthy additions. These include mechanical obstruction of the common bile duct anastomosis, infection, graft malfunction, hepatic artery thrombosis, rejection, and drug toxicity. For this reason, immunosuppressive levels should be checked and an ultrasound should be performed to evaluate the hepatic artery and portal vein. One more incredibly unfortunate situation would be acute loss of graft function. This usually occurs within the first month and can occur in up to one-third of patients. Treatment should of course be done in conjunction with their hepatologist, but includes high-dose methylprednisolone and admission to the hospital. Alright, on to controversies and cutting edge. At the moment, the only definitive treatment for fulminant or chronic liver failure is liver transplant, with a 5-year survival between 70 and 80%, which is greatly limited by a finite supply of livers. In response to the shortage, several extracorporeal liver support systems have been tested. Bioartificial livers consisting of hepatocytes in a synthetic framework have been used extracorporeally and implanted within the patient's own abdominal cavity to artificially filter the patient's blood. At this point, multiple RCTs have showed no survival benefit. Others have also tested extracorporeal whole liver perfusion in which the patient's blood is filtered through either a pig or human allograft before returning to the patient's body. There are no RCTs for this to date. Interesting. Looking forward to hearing more on that and the future role for emergency providers. On to disposition, the final section of the day. Unfortunately, there are no clear-cut guidelines beyond the neonatal hyperbilly guidelines to help guide you. 
Disposition will ultimately depend on the underlying cause. New onset hemolysis, biliary obstruction, obstructive jaundice, or hepatocellular injury will all likely require admission. Mild elevations of transaminases can be discharged with close follow-up, but a transaminase approaching 1,000 should likely be admitted. And finally, several patient populations must be considered for transfer. Consider transferring any jaundice neonate to the nearest children's hospital. Consider transferring any jaundice pregnant patient to a facility that can handle high-risk deliveries. And consider transferring any jaundice patient with acute liver failure or risk for acute liver failure to a liver transplant center. And even if the patient will not ultimately require a transplant, they may benefit from the services at the transplant center. Let's wrap up with a summary of the key points from today. Jaundice has an extremely broad differential and can result from a multitude of hepatic and hematologic pathologies. Studies have shown that the history and physical are particularly important in narrowing the differential when it comes to jaundice. Remember to ask about acetaminophen usage and mushroom exposure as both are potentially treatable causes. Life-threatening conditions presenting with jaundice include fulminant hepatic failure, acute cholangitis, massive hemolysis, neonatal hyperbilirubinemia, acute fatty liver pregnancy, and acetaminophen overdose. In most patients presenting with acute jaundice, ultrasound will be the go-to imaging modality. If malignancy is suspected, CT plays an increasingly important role. For negative or equivocal ultrasounds in a patient with right upper quadrant pain, consider a HIDA scan, which has the highest sensitivity for cholecystitis. ERCP offers the ability to both diagnose and treat causes of jaundice. It is, however, invasive and not without complications. MRCP is a useful technique for those who require non-invasive imaging of the biliary tree or after a failed ERCP. Treatment for jaundice in the emergency department is largely supportive, hinging on treating the underlying pathology. Early-stage hepatic encephalopathy should be treated with lactulose. For late-stage hepatic encephalopathy, add rifaximin, which works by reducing ammonia production. Late-stage hepatic encephalopathy is associated with cerebral edema and should be treated with head of bed elevation, IV mannitol, and hypertonic saline. Acetaminophen accounts for a large percentage of cases of acute liver failure. If suspected, treat with NAC immediately. NAC should be given PO if the patient can tolerate it. There may be a benefit of NAC up to 48 hours after acetaminophen ingestion. In neonates, expect higher levels of bilirubin due to normal physiologic processes and refer to the AAP guidelines for treatment recommendations. Neonatal bilirubin may be checked transcutaneously or via blood sample. Treatment is with phototherapy and exchange transfusion or phenobarbital in severe cases. Extracorporeal liver support is currently being tested. Keep your eye out for more on this in the future. So that wraps up the April 2018 episode of Amplify. Make sure to head over to clinicaldecisionmaking.com to learn more about the upcoming Clinical Decision Making and Emergency Medicine Conference, co-sponsored by EB Medicine. This will be held in Ponte Vedra Beach, Florida from June 21st to June 24th. And we've said it before, but I'll say it again. This is definitely a can't-miss event. Great speakers, up-to-date, evidence-based lectures, and a well-deserved break from the chaos of the ED, all at a beautiful Florida family-friendly beach resort. And make sure to follow EB Medicine on Twitter at EB Medicine for updates and frequent evidence-based emergency medicine pearls. Remember to check out this month's issue of Points and Pearls for a quick-hitting summary of key points in this article, as well as practice-changing clinical pearls. And don't forget to head over to www.ebmedicine.net slash E0418 to earn your much-deserved CME credit. It should only take a few minutes to breeze through the 10 CME questions after having listened to this episode. And for all our resident listeners out there who don't need CME just yet, did you know that EB Medicine offers free access to emergency medicine practice? Head over to www.ebmedicine.net net slash residents to get started today. Talk to you all next month.